Is there good reason to believe in God? Well, today I, I will take that question of this common debate about if there's good evidence for God in its broadest sense, an assumption that I hope any atheist would actually agree with, and that is whether or not there is any good reason to believe in God. Evidence as defined by epistemologists the world over is anything that adds to the probability of something being true or being the case in the actual world. I'm here not going to engage with the scientistic, materialistic, or empiricists, uh, their assertion that only empirical or sciency observations count as real evidence. Not many philosophers take that view seriously, and so because it's such a minority view, I'm not really going to engage it here, although I will address it briefly towards the end when I respond to some of the objections that I've received over the years to the argument that I lay out below. I do not mean that as an appeal to majority or authority as I'm not saying because hardly any philosophers take it seriously that therefore it's false, but rather that I would much rather engage with the strongest and most widely held positions among academic atheists and philosophers today. So I'm not attempting to appease the logical positivists and empiricists and scientismists in the audience. This is because, again, those who think that we should only accept and believe what can be empirically or scientifically verified are not only accepting and believing a standard that cannot itself be empirically verified and thus inherently contradicts their own standard of evidentiary use, but also they make a simple category error in their demand for exclusively empirical evidence for what would be, if true, a non-natural, non-empirical fact. So let me first state that I simply reject the demand for me to come play on their epistemological field with their specific evidentiary constraints, much to their chagrin, I'm sure. For more on these, you can see my episodes on naturalism and evidentiary standards. So to begin with, I will answer the question as to why I think belief in God is reasonable. That is, why there is good reason to believe that we live in a God-created rather than a God-less cosmos. For while many atheists will want to say that atheism just is a lack of belief, let's put a pen in the problems with that, they still will regularly say that it's reasonable to adopt such a stance because they believe there's no good or compelling reason or evidence to believe that God exists. So here I'll be arguing for the reasonableness of belief in God. I'll then respond to common atheistic objections from epistemic standards that are replete in the atheistic community. Now, to my positive case for God. Let me lay out a syllogistic argument that will be the framework for my statements here. I take it that the argument is so demonstrably valid, so it will be the truth of the fact or the value premise which any atheist responding to me will likely want to challenge. The argument is as follows. Number one, if God did not exist, then no transcendental facts of reality could be coherently affirmed. Two, we can coherently affirm transcendental facts of reality. Three, it follows God exists. 
This might be too deductive for most, most atheists, who may see this as an attempt to argue for some kind of Cartesian certainty in our belief. So since I'm not here pushing for that kind of Cartesian or absolute certainty, let me attempt to make a much more modest, abductive version of the argument. And that is merely that if we can coherently affirm transcendental facts of reality, then it is most plausibly because God exists. Now, a transcendental, not to be confused with transcendent, are facts that are preconditions for rationality. That is, for people to be reasonable, to use reason or to be rational in their belief, these facts have to exist and be true for that to be the case. Some examples would be things like the laws of logic, a disambiguation between the one and the many, the reality and intelligibility of the external world, the effectiveness of mathematics, the reality of the past, consistent and law-abiding natural phenomenon, and so on. Now, we all agree on the fact that we can reason. That is a functional common ground that we share, and if you disagree with that, then you likely wouldn't have tuned into an episode on the existence of God. If the atheist and I didn't believe that, we wouldn't be here having these types of discussions. You don't expect to see an atheist and a theist just sit here and emote at each other. But in order for us to reason, these transcendental facts must exist as preconditions for rationality. For what would it even mean to say that we could be rational if there were no laws of logic? If someone could state contradictions as true or say something is not identical with itself? Or if the external world was entirely unintelligible and did not exist in an orderly or consistent state? Or if we could not make distinctions between one and the many, parts and wholes, property and objects, and so on? There are certain facts of reality that just must obtain in order for reason and rationality to even be possible. And yet, we all accept that reason and rationality are possible, and indeed actual, and thus I take it that premise two is just non-controversial. But what follows from that is what is important to my argument here. These transcendentals that ground our ability to reason entail certain facts about what kind of explanations they themselves might have in order for them to exist in the first place. Let me use the laws of logic as an example of abduction from a transcendental fact. The laws of logic have the qualities of being transcendent, objective, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, abstract principles of true thought. To deny any one of these attributes is to effectively throw logic and any process or method built on them, like science, out the window. Why? Well, imagine that I said logic wasn't necessarily spaceless. This would entail that logic may only apply to specific locations in space. A person may then arbitrarily say that the law of non-contradiction is true on Earth, but maybe not in orbit around Alpha Centauri. Not only would we want that person to justify such a radical claim, ironically by employing logic, but it would make the use of logic variant and viable. So imagine that some atheist named Joe believes that the concept of God entails a logical contradiction. Well, if logic were, were viable and variant like this, it would mean that belief in God would be irrational on Earth, maybe, but potentially not irrational in orbit around Alpha Centauri. 
The same goes for other attributes. Just consider for yourself what it would mean if the law of identity was material. Well, would an abstract object like the concept of the number two not be identical with itself because it, it's itself not material? Or what about time bound? Could a contradiction be irrational today, but rational tomorrow? What about if the laws of logic are objective or conventional? Well, if they are something that we as humans invented, that is their conventions or the subjective, to help describe the world, then that would mean that they are like legal fictions, that they're useful, but not that they're true. They'd just be useful fictions. The implications of this are horrendous. Think of our atheist friend Joe who thinks the concept of God violates a logical convention and therefore shouldn't be believed. Well, imagine some other group of theists came to agree with Joe that the God concept entailed a contradiction and so they just invented a new convention that overcame Joe's objection. Or they just scrapped that the law is applying to God in the first place. Why ought the group of theists be subject to one man-made convention over another? when they wouldn't be. But Joe would almost certainly find them rationally blameworthy for that. That is, he would expect that the standard be applied not as a convention, but as an objective standard that they must subject themselves to in order to be rational in their belief. Joe wouldn't think himself just a conceptual imperialist going around imposing one possible subjective convention as opposed to others on other people. Joe would consider this to be the way the world really is, more so the way the world really, really is. And I think Joe is right. Moreover, the laws of logic are transcendent, and here I do mean transcendent, not transcendental, that they exist outside of the bounds of the natural cosmos, be it the universe or the multiverse. Why do I think this? Because if they were a feature wholly within the cosmos, then the cosmos itself as a whole would not be subject to them. By the way, this is similar to the common atheistic objection to the something like the principle of sufficient reason in the Kalam argument, where they want to say that just because things that begin to exist within the cosmos always have causes, that it doesn't follow that the cosmos as a whole has a cause. So, what's good for the goose? But this would mean that it could be the case then that the cosmos could exist and not exist at the same time and in the same way. Now, unless one wants to commit themselves to affirming the possibility of contradictions like that, it seems necessary that the laws of logic be transcendent. So what do we have? A transcendent realm of objective, absolute, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, abstract principles of true thought. Remember, the laws of logic are rational principles. They're not laws of nature like gravity or motion that can be measured that way. They're principles which ground, frame, guide, correct, pro and, and, uh, and correct thinking via proper identification and inference. And if the atheist wants to deny all that, well, then they're denying the foundations of being rational in the first place which is a precarious position to be in. When we ask then what the possible basis for them could be, we categorically only have one feasible option, a transcendent, objective, absolute, spaceless, timeless, immaterial, omnirational, personal mind. Why do I say this? 
Well, atheistic philosopher Thomas Nagel wrote an interesting book some years ago called Mind and Cosmos, where he argued that the epistemological program of naturalism has failed and failed miserably. And so Nagel proposed a new kind of way to understand the world, a kind of non-theistic Neoplatonism. His argument is basically, well, we have all these fundamental transcendental facts of reality, logic, intentionality, persons, minds, etc., which, which naturalism fails to account for, but theism can account for it. But we can't let theism be true, so maybe it's this neoplatonic realm of abstractions. Nagel just arbitrarily doesn't allow the theistic explanation because he doesn't like it. But just as a matter of incredulity and not for any fact of consistency or coherence or evidence, just because. So he eliminates categorically all naturalistic accounts. He admits theism can account for these features of reality, but won't allow for it. And so the only category left is a kind of neoplatonic realm of abstractions. So, Nagel says, some version of that must be the case. But Nagel chops off his nose to spite his face by denying theism and doubling down on an incoherent category, like what he already objected in naturalism, because Neoplatonism just doesn't make sense. It's literally incoherent. What does it even mean to say that the law of non-contradiction, qua the law of non-contradiction, exists? Not as a concept in a mind, mind you, but just abstractly, as a thing unto itself. And how would such an abstraction causally interact with the cosmos such that the cosmos itself as a whole would be subject to it, let alone incorporate it into its fabric of being such that nothing can exist or be true within the cosmos that violates such a law? Nagel's Neoplatonic world just cannot possibly be an explanation categorically because it just is conceptually vacuous and incoherent and causally inert. However, we do understand what a law of logic is conceptually as a principle of true thought in a mind. And further, God is a person with intentionality and authority and can create, impose, and enforce on his creation these concepts such that we have a logical world. So God as an explanation overcomes the causality problem inherent in abstract objects. So what are we left with? If natural explanations fail, and platonic explanations fail, then what we have is agency. Specifically based on the attributes of the facts under explanation, we have a transcendent, objective, absolute, spaceless, timeless, immaterial, omnirational, personal mind type of agency. And this just is what we classically mean by God. Therefore, we have a strong abductive reason to believe God is the best explanation for these fundamental features of reality. Notice this means that God is necessary for our ability to even reason in the first place, so that we can reason becomes explicable only given theism. Now, let me shift to two common objections I see from atheists and try to speak to them to help advance the dialogue to follow. These are the issue of brute facts and Occam's razor. First, brute facts. At this point in the discussion, a common tactic one may take is to simply question why we need to conceptually ground transcendental facts like the laws of logic in the first place. 
Can we not simply appeal to ignorance or agnosticism and say we don't know what grounds them or make even the harder claim that they need no grounding at all, that they just are brute facts of reality? For isn't that what the Christian does with God anyways? A couple of thoughts. First, God's not a brute fact. God is a self-existing necessary fact, and such a fact does have a grounding for why it exists, the self-contained necessity of its own being. That is not an ungrounded or ungroundable brute fact. So if the atheist wants to say that the theist does the same thing with God as the atheist may try to do with the transcendental facts of reality, he's simply mistaken. Or if he wants to do the same thing, he needs to provide a self-existent necessary fact as an explanation, which he doesn't have. On the other hand, the transcendental facts of reality do not seem to be self-existent necessary facts, especially on the naturalistic worldview. For on naturalism, we could imagine that Nothing exists, has ever existed, or will ever exist, ignore the, ignoring the semantic problem of saying nothing exists. To escape this, the atheist would need to posit, along with Nagel, some kind of neoplatonic realm that eternally existed abstractly, even if no natural cosmos ever existed. But then, my previous objections to that would apply, and the atheist would then be committing himself to a category of explanation which I doubt most of them would otherwise want to affirm. It would be impossible for the empiricist or the materialist to affirm this anyways, as there would be no empirical or material evidence for it, and they would have to admit that this non-material, non-empirical realm of abstract objects really exists, contrary to their stated worldview. So this would mean that most of the atheists that we find online or in these YouTube forums just could not avail themselves of this option to begin with without radically altering their worldview first. And by the way, without radically altering their scientism, which demands empirical evidence as the only type of evidence to begin with. Also, claiming ignorance of an explanation isn't a valid response. One's own ignorance or personal incredulity are just not objections. They're just statements of a personal disposition. Imagine that an atheist gave all kinds of good arguments and evidence for evolution, but then that some young earther responded, well, that's great and all, but isn't it possible that you have the wrong explanation or that you've added an explanation that just isn't needed or that there's just a brute fact somewhere else that explains it that we don't need your explanation? Therefore, it's more rational to withhold belief, and it's more intellectually honest and humble than it is to believe until you can know it with certainty. The atheist would likely think the young earthers, I mean, free to remain skeptical or agnostic, but I doubt he would take that as a reasonable defeater for his own belief that evidence is true, or at least the best explanation currently available for the data. So saying that there could potentially be some otherwise unknown, unstated, possibly better explanation than God, than that we don't, and that other, unless we have epistemic Cartesian certainty that God exists, that there, there, you know, we have to admit these other explanations, that may sound nice to the skeptics, but it's not actually a reasonable response to any argument given for God. It's just a statement of personal incredulity and a kind of weird hyper-skepticism that says, well, even if we have a plausible, reasonable explanation, 
we just shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't moderate our belief to that because if there's a po- even if there's a possible defeater without us even knowing what it is, we should withhold all belief and all conviction. That's just not how epistemology or, or reasonably belief works. Sometimes this objection cashes itself out in something like an appeal to a flying spaghetti monster or some other such absurdity. I've addressed this many times but before, before, but let me give two thoughts on why this silly objection is, well, silly. First, the concept is potentially incoherent. Spaghetti is, in concept, a man-made food product. It's not a personal being. Well, the skeptic says, this is a magical spaghetti monster, that this spaghetti is personal. Okay, so then they mean it's spaghetti in a way that makes it not spaghetti. So, or flying. Well, flying just means that it, that it moves, uh, you know, against, you know, has enough force to go against gravity to move from one like, location to another off the ground. Well... And, and that would mean that it's within space-time. Well, it's this magical type of flight. We just use it in this metaphorical, spiritual sense. Okay, so you mean flying that isn't actually flying. So the labels just become incoherent and arbitrary at best as the skeptic can change them in this ad hoc manner, like a conceptual wax, wax nose, so that a, a flying spaghetti monster is neither flying nor spaghetti nor a monster. Second, in order for something like the flying spaghetti monster to be an alternative explanation to God, the skeptic must make even more ad hoc adjustments to the concept. So spaghetti is space-bound, temporal, and a finite part of the cosmos. Well, not this spaghetti. It's spaceless, timeless, and transcendent. Okay, but spaghetti is not personal, and it's not moral, rational, or, or an intentional agent, and thus it cannot ground or authoritatively infuse the cosmos with objective morality, rationality, or ground intentional agency. Oh, not this spaghetti. It's omniscient, omnipotent, omnirational, omnibenevolent, personal. And on and on, the ad hoc tweaks go. Remember, they're attempting to say that whatever is meant by flying spaghetti monster is an alternative explanation to God. But notice that in order to make their case and overcome objections, they have to redefine the attributes of the flying spaghetti monster to make it conceptually indistinguishable from God. This is telling because it means that while the skeptic wants to say that it's possible for there to be other explanations with the same explanatory virtue as God, in reality, the only alternatives are just identical concepts to God just given a different label. And we all know a rose by any other name would explain just as sweet. And this leads to a more common response, some version of the I don't know position which atheists often couple with an almost fetishized use of Occam's razor. Now, atheists have often correctly noted that Occam's razor is not that the simpler explanation is de facto preferred despite all other considerations. This would just be silly and falsified so often that it wouldn't even be helpful as a rule. So they're right to point out that the rule is that we ought not multiply entities beyond reason or necessity. But I have argued, I hope successfully, that positing God as an objective, uh, abductively best explanation is not only not beyond reason, and in fact is the most reasonable explanation for logic and our ability to reason themselves in the first place, but it also does not multiply entities or explanations, since it only posits one. We're looking for an explanation? 
we have an explanation, one of them. Remember, we're seeking an explanation for various transcendental facts, and the Christian posits a single entity as the explanation for all of them. The atheist, however, would either need to explain explanations and appeal to brute facts, which I showed already doesn't work, or he'll need to come up with some explanation for these transcendental facts by appeal to explanations that are not God. The atheist simply doesn't have a single possible candidate for all of these features, and thus would necessarily multiply explanations up to potentially one for each individual transcendental fact of reality, possibly dozens, while the theist would still only have one. In addition to this, when we're exploring what makes a robust and rational explanation, simplicity is not the only metric. There are numerous other explanatory virtues. There's the, internal in, in, there's the internal coherence or consistency of the concept, the lowest level of ad hoc changes, its explanatory power to explain the question under investigation, its explanatory scope to, name, to explain multiple data points or questions. As an explanation, God is an exemplar in each of these metrics, making it a powerful explanation as an entire matrix. And, and this is not only true for transcendental facts like those listed above, but also for other big facts of reality like why there is something rather than nothing, specified complexity of genetic information, the fine-tuning of the constants and quantities of the initial state of the universe, the existence of rational and moral agency, and the existence of persons, minds, and intentionality, the facts surrounding the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and so on and so forth. So to that end, given the transcendental facts of reality and what we know about them, one has high warrant for belief in God as the ground of being for a ground of being for all reality. Now, for the atheist to object to this, they either must give an objection or give a plausible explanation that is better than God as an explanation. Remember, it has to be uh, similar in simplicity, similar in scope, similar in explanatory power with less ad hoc to even rival God as an explanation. Or, and this is probably most likely, they're going to question beg their own evidentiary standards and their worldview and say things like, oh, well, arguments aren't evidence, and so you haven't actually given evidence. Or, well, you haven't proven that God exists yet independently, and so you can't posit him as an explanation. See my prior video where I responded to these types of objections. They just aren't good defeaters for the argument that I provided here. Any rational and clear thinker who, who wants to say that they're reasonably engaging in these things has to engage with the argument as I provided and defended through a viable conceptual analysis of what would be the best explanation for these transcendental facts of reality. So thank you again for joining. Uh, I hope if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to leave a comment below. Hopefully after you click on the bell uh, to, to get notifications for us, after you subscribe to the channel, and maybe hopefully after you share uh, this video or any other video. This will be in a playlist dealing uh, with atheism and skepticism. Watch through those videos and enjoy. If you have, again, any one of those comments or anything you'd like to post, you can go to the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or come on by the Freedthinker group page on Facebook. Again, thank you for joining. Good night and God bless.